Scripture reading is Luke 14, verses 1 through 24. You can find it in page 1034 of your pew Bibles. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they said nothing. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take a least, the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. So you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm, I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, no one, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Thanks, Al. So it's, it's sometimes said that there are two kinds of people in this world. Uh, there are those who live to work, and there are those who work to live. Right? There are those who live to work, and there are those who work to live. There are those who live to work. Right? We know these people. These are those individuals who, no matter where they are, they could be sitting on the beach in Hawaii. My brother just called me from Hawaii. That's why I'm thinking of this. He's in Hawaii. He called me from the beach to say hello. Wasn't that nice of him? 
But these individuals, they could be sitting on the beach in Hawaii. They're, they're physically in Hawaii, but their mind is not there at all. Their mind is on their work. Their mind is on what needs to be happening back in New York. Maybe they even have their phone out while they're on the beach. This is somebody who lives to work. Work is all-consuming to them. And in fact, when they take time off from work, if they really ever do, if they do take off time from work, it's really just to kind of, you know, take a breath so that they can dive right back into work. That what they live for is work. They live to work. Then there are the other types of people that they work to live, right? Working is just, you know, I have a friend, he's like, it's just a job. I'm like, what do you do? It's just a job, right? He, it's just there to pay the bills. And the person who works to live, their perspective is just, you know, get the highest paying job with the least amount of hours that you can possibly get because I work to live. I live for the weekend. I live for retirement. I live for vacation. And I am just working to live. And so the opening question I'd have for you is, which of these two categories do you think you might fall into? Do you live to work or do you work to live? Or is it possible there's a third option? Today we're continuing our series on the book of Luke. We're looking at the second half of the book of Luke, looking at some key passages And what we've seen is that in the book of Luke, the the second half of the book of Luke, of course, the whole book chronicles the the life and ministry of Jesus. But in the second half of the book of Luke, it's interesting because there's this verse in chapter 9 where it says that from this point on, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And the idea then is that everything that we read in the subsequent chapters is to be read in in light of the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem He is on his way ultimately to die. He's ultimately going to give his life. He's surrendering his life to the will of the Father for the sake of humanity. And so the entire section is to be seen in light of him going to surrender. And so when he invites us to follow him, which is a constant theme in these chapters, is he's inviting us to surrender with him. It's an invitation for us to surrender our lives to God as well. This is why this is, we're doing this during the season of Lent. Lent is a season that traditionally has been seen as a time in which we focus on surrendering more of our lives to God. And so we have in the back, we have our surrender tree. Uh, those of you who come regularly will know, will be familiar with our tree that we have in the back, that it's moved. It's a moving tree. It's moved a few times, but it's a tree that sometimes changes during the seasons, during Thanksgiving. It's our Thanksgiving tree. And it's an opportunity for people to write all the things that they're thankful about and to post that on the tree. During Advent, we called it the tree of longing. And in that season, it was an opportunity to write down your prayer requests. What are the things that you long to to have happen in your life that you're seeking for God to, to come and help you with? That was when it was the tree of longing. Now it's the tree of surrender. And it's this idea, this opportunity for us to write down on the leaves and then tape them to the tree of things that we feel like God is calling us to surrender to Him. Maybe He's calling us to surrender our marriage to God. Maybe He's calling us to a surrender some habit that we've gotten into, which we know is not honoring to God and is not good for us either. Those are 
the same thing. If it's not honoring to God, it's because it's not good for you. And if it's not good for you, it's not honoring to God. And so we, we surrender that to him. So this is this season of surrender. And so we're looking at, at what, what, what does this look like? And, and the, key, the key thing to remember is that this surrendering leads to life. That's the whole point. That the theme verse for this whole series is on the back wall. You'll see it as you walk out by the tree. Luke 9, 24, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. You see, I think we have this idea that we've got to try to save our life. I've got to make things happen for me, right? I've got, I, I remember watching a, a concert of John Mayer, and he, he says at one point, he, he just talks about, he's like, he's like, I'm 30 years old, and I've made a lot of things happen for myself. I've made a lot of things happen for myself. And it's, you know, it's very sort of humble tone. He's like, and, and, and this, I think, is the approach that many of us have. Like, I've got to make things happen for myself. If I don't, if I don't, if I don't go, it's like survival of the fittest, right? That's what we live in is a world of survival of the fittest. So, I've got to go and I've got to get and I've got to make things happen for myself. And Jesus is actually suggesting that perhaps what leads to life might be the very opposite. That it's when we die to ourselves, when we surrender ourselves to God, this is what leads to life. And of course, this whole season of Lent, what is it culminating? It culminates in Easter. It culminates in the resurrection of Jesus and it this shows us that the, re- the reason why dying leads to life. Jesus gave his life, but it led to life. So I want to remind you of that. They, a lot of the things that you could hear what I'm saying, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this series that Pastor Kevin's doing, if I did that, my life would be terrible. Is it possible that it's the very opposite? That this surrendering, giving our lives to God actually leads to life. And we see this idea that it leads to life again in this passage by the analogy that Jesus uses when he talks about the kingdom of God. And he talks about this individual who invites people. It's an invitation. But what is it an invitation to? Is it an invitation to a miserable life? Is he inviting them? Hey, I'd like you to come and, and uh, you know, work, work for me. I'd like you to come become my slave and... and and, you know, I'm going to exhaust you and wear you out and put you in chains. Is that what he's inviting him to? No, it says he's inviting him to a party. Jesus is comparing surrendering our lives to God to being invited to some ridiculously amazing party. I mean, some ridiculously amazing dinner party. And it's almost as if he's saying, you know, you guys are spending all your time trying to make dinner for yourself. And the best that you can muster up is Kraft macaroni and cheese. Some of you are like, well, actually, I love that, Kevin. I'm good to go with that. And he's, like, he's like, no, no, you're, the best you can come up with is spam, canned spam. You guys love spam. I don't know. What do you guys not like? Okay, whatever. It's, it's not working. He's like, but if you come to me, if you come to me, what I offer you is so much bigger than that. Uh, a number of years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity, I, I had been uh, playing in a worship band for a conference in Connecticut is where it was. After the conference, we were invited, myself and one of the other members of the band were invited to go to Boston, and this individual took us out to dinner. I took him and his wife out, me and Laura out. So there were six of us 
that went out to dinner at this restaurant in Boston. And it was one of these restaurants where there isn't even a sign out front. Like, you, you have to know that it's there. They don't want just anybody walking in. And we went to this, this restaurant, and I'll just I'll get to the end here. There were six of us, and the total bill at the end was $2,300 for the six of us. I, I did not pay this, right? I was taken to this dinner. And it was this, this nine-course meal, nine-course meal and, and four appetizers. And it was like every... Every round or whatever, I don't know even what you call it. It's not like I'm used to this sort of thing, right? Uh, every, every course, that's the word, course. Uh, every course was the greatest thing I'd ever tasted, right? Course number one, oh my gosh, this is the best thing I've ever had until I had course two. And then course three, it was absolutely the most amazing dinner I have ever had in my life. And I think what Jesus is trying to say is, this is what I'm inviting you to. This is what I'm inviting you to. And and in light of that, when we come to realize that this is what he's inviting us to, we begin to realize how ridiculous our excuses are. They're just ridiculous. This is what we see in this passage, right, is a bunch of excuses within this parable of the great banquet. He invites all of these people, and they just keep coming up with excuses on why they can't come. In verse, uh, verse... 17, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, there's some debate among scholars, but there are some who believe that Jesus is highlighting in the way he tells us some things that are are really ridiculous. So, for example, it's possible. We don't know this for sure. But in the first one, it says, I just bought a field. I must go see it. The word there for see it is a word that actually might better be translated as, I need to go examine it. And it's sort of this idea that, wait a minute, you didn't examine it before you bought it? You already bought it? You got it? That doesn't even make any sense. Or I, I just bought five yoke of auction and I need to go try them out. You mean you didn't try them out before you bought them? I mean, it just kind of seems like they're just kind of making excuses. And then, oh, I can't come because I just got married. It's like, bring your spouse. What are you talking about? She's invited as well. It just highlights these lame excuses. Right? Have you ever had somebody give you a really lame excuse for something? Have you, you ever given somebody a really, a really lame excuse? Uh, let, me, let me give you some. I, I looked up, I Googled this, and Reader's Digest had this little article about some of the lamest excuses that have ever been given, just kind of just some randomly lame excuses. So apparently these are, are excuses that people actually gave. And the, the first, I'm just giving you a couple. The first one is, is about, um, the first one is excuses why you, you wouldn't go out on a date with somebody. Uh, I, I had a friend, for example, who he invited this girl out to go on a date. He'd, he'd gotten to know her. They'd become friends, and he finally mustered up the courage to ask her out on a date. And she said she'd love to, but she had to do her laundry. That's lame, right? Let me give you a few more lame ones here. This is a good one. Uh, I can't spend time with you because 
I've got to spend more time with my dog. Oh. You know, he probably needed it, right? He probably needed some time. Okay, another one. Um, I can't spend time with you because I've got to focus on finding out the truth about Benghazi. What? I mean, okay. We, we, look, we all want to know the truth about Benghazi, right? I mean, this is true, right? but maybe we could, we could do it together. We could, we could investigate this together. We could go to dinner together. We could, you know, both get out our phones. And I mean, that's what we do on dates these days anyways, right? And we could all do our research about Benghazi. Oh, we could do this together. What is this? Here's some more lame excuses. This is uh, one. These are ones for not paying the rent. These are ones that, tenants, Laura and I have... Uh, a condo which we're renting in Maryland. We just got a new renter, so this is very uh, apropos for us. Our new renter is great, by the way, so far. But, but these, are, these are excuses that tenants have given to landlords. I love this one. I can't pay the rent. Here's why. We realized we can't pay it next month, so we decided not to pay you this month as well. Well, I, I, oh, thank you. I appreciate it. It's all about just clear communication. If we can just keep being honest with each, other, with each other, I'm sure everything will be fine, right? And this one, here's another one. I can't pay my rent because my dealer has raised his prices. You know how it goes. <laughs> Lame excuses. You can, you can move on from that, Nick. Sometimes we give lame excuses for all kinds of things. Things that ultimately are, in hindsight, we realize how ridiculous it was that we missed out on. My wife and I, we, there was a period in our life where my brother was living in Ireland, and he invited us to come out and stay with him in Ireland. And we're not, I'm not even sure what reasons we gave for not coming, but that's one of those things in hindsight, we're like, why didn't we go? Why did we not go visit him? when he was in Ireland. Have you ever done that? Have you ever given an excuse for something and then later on, in hindsight, you realize, boy, I really wish that I'd done that. You see, what Jesus is saying is that this is what it's going to be like if we give excuses for not surrendering our lives to God. But we do this, don't we? I mean, we, we make excuses for why we don't maybe surrender as much of our lives to God. We, we make excuses, as this one highlights work. Works apparently was a problem in the first century. Maybe today we, we make excuses. But, you know, I don't have time to pursue my relationship with God. I don't have time to go to church or serve in church or, or whatever. I, I don't have time to do these things because, because of work. I'm too busy. I mean, these are kinds of excuses that we make. Uh, relationships can sometimes hinder our ability to surrender our lives to God. I, I just know for a fact that over the years of ministry, there have been times when I've, I've been in uh, relationships with individuals who have been involved in a ministry, and they, they're just really pursuing the Lord, and they're really growing in the Lord, and then they get involved in a dating relationship, and they just disappear. They're just gone. It's not all that uncommon. I see it happen all the time. It's, it's not uncommon for us to make excuses for why we don't surrender our lives to God. And and what's important, again, what I I want us to realize here, I'm not trying to to guilt anybody here. That's not the point. This isn't isn't trying to guilt people into serving in the church or spending more time in study and all of that. I'm I'm not trying to guilt anybody in it. 
Because the reality is what Jesus wants to say is, look, when we do this, we're the ones that are missing out. This is one of the things that I, I, I try and, and I want to encourage those of you who are serving in the church. And one of the things in the church we need to do is we're always looking to recruit other people to be involved. And what I really want to create is a culture where those of us who are in leadership, we, we're not afraid to ask people to serve because we really believe that it's for their, it's for their benefit. Like, okay, if you don't want to, that's okay. Like, but we really believe you're the one that's missing out. It's like, if I've got an extra ticket to the Super Bowl and I invite you and you don't come, I'm like, okay, you're, you're the one missing out. And Jesus is saying that this, this is how we should understand what it means to surrender to God. It's not a matter of trying to pressure people into anything. It's simply saying this is the greatest thing that you can ever do with your life is to surrender Because it leads to life. Surrendering our lives to God leads to life. Second thing I want us to see here is that this invitation, this is really important, this invitation to surrender our lives to God, this invitation to enter into the kingdom of God is for everyone. It's for everyone. It's not that there are some people who are not invited. Everybody is invited to this. This is the point that Jesus makes especially here in in verse 21, right? So first, he invites the first group of people, then they don't come, so then he invites some more. I don't think that's something we're supposed to take literally as if you're, like, waiting for a slot to open up. That's not what this is about. It's just a parable. You don't take every detail of a parable literally. The point here is that then he goes and he invites some people that, that normally in the first century world are not the individuals that respectable, good religious people would invite to their dinner party. That's what goes on here. So after the first group don't come to the party, then in verse 21, he says, well, oh, so the servant comes back and reports to his master that they, they didn't want to come. And so then the owner says, well, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And then down in verse 23, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. And what he's, when he, he's identifying categories of people that were not really welcome in that culture, that in the religious world, the first century, the first century uh, uh, Palestinian world, that if you were lame or crippled or poor, that was a sign, it was believed, that you were cursed by God. And so you didn't invite them because clearly God had already distanced himself from them That's why they're crippled. That's why they're lame. That's why they're poor. And so now Jesus is welcoming in all of these people that were not normally people you would invite in. In fact, it seems like he's inviting people. He's inviting people that maybe they even feel like they shouldn't be there. Verse 23, the way it's worded here, he says, go out and and make them come in. Right? I mean, he's inviting them to this dinner party. Why would you have to make them come in? Well, you might have to make them come in because they're thinking to themselves, really? This, is, this can't possibly be for me. There's no way I could be included. I, there's no way somebody would invite me to something like this. How many of us have that sort of attitude, have that feeling with regards to the kingdom of God and our relationship with God? Maybe you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way God would ever invite me to be a part of his kingdom. No, no, if you, if you people knew what I had done in my past, if you knew the kinds of things that I've been involved in, 
No, no, there's no possible way that God could be inviting me into his kingdom. Jesus is saying no. The invitation is for everyone, no matter what you've done, that you are not welcomed into the kingdom of God because of your obedience. That's not why you get welcomed into the kingdom of God. God invites everybody, even though we have sinned and fallen and turned away from God. It's not on the basis of our obedience. It's on the basis of God's grace. Every single person in this room, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God is inviting you into the kingdom of God. It's not based on your obedience, but here's what we need to understand. You're not welcomed into the kingdom of God on the basis of your obedience, but what you are invited to is to be obedient. That's actually what the kingdom of God is. You're not welcomed in on the basis of your obedience, but the invitation is to be obedient. The invitation is to surrender. You're not welcomed into the kingdom of God because you surrender. You're invited to surrender no matter what you have done in the past. That that's ultimately what leads to life. So this is what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, this idea of surrendering our lives to God. And what we've been doing is is really looking at this idea from different angles, from different perspectives. It's not like each week I'm giving you something new that you need to surrender. That's not really what I'm trying to do here. Just trying to give you a different perspective. Uh, many of you know Paul Seibert, a uh, member of our church, who he does photography. He's an incredible photographer. Most of his photographs, a lot of what he does is he takes pictures of New York City. Now, he does go to other cities and some, from time to time, but mainly he just takes photos of New York City, but he takes it from different angles all the time. Sometimes he's in a helicopter. Sometimes he's on the west side. Sometimes he's, he takes it from different perspectives, and in many respects, What this series is, is we're looking at this idea of surrender as if surrendering were New York City, and we're just trying to look at it from different angles. So the angle we're going to look at here as we finish here is this idea that when we're called to surrender, we're called to surrender our time to God. We're called to surrender our time to God. And I think this is an incredibly difficult one for us, right, because we're We're busy people. In fact, I think in our culture, busyness is almost a sign of status. It's it's something, you don't want to tell somebody you're not busy. Then Then they think that you're lame. They think that you're lazy. They think that you're not capable, right? If you're busy, you must be important. I think there's almost this status that is involved in being busy. How was your week? Oh, I'm so busy, right? We love to say that, don't we? Oh, so busy. You feel good about it. It's like this status symbol. And, and this is something that we, we have to really check. Because what it means to surrender to God is being willing to surrender our time. Now, what, is that, what, now what do we mean? Getting practical. What does it mean to surrender our time to God? Okay, certainly it means things like spending time with God in prayer and study, uh, certainly it means I'm encouraging you to come to church, right? Uh, certainly it means, uh, you know, we, we have this family devotional that we have available for you during this series. We're trying to encourage you. That's one way to spend more time with God is to do this weekly family devotional that we have in the foyer. We'd love for you to do that, right? I mean, obviously these are ways in which we surrender our time to God through prayer and study and 
and, and serving in church and coming. Of course, yeah, I would, love for, I would love for this series to inspire more people to serve in the church. That's certainly a goal that I would love to see. As you know, there's a lot of things going on in our church right now, a lot of construction and whatnot. I'm sure the trustees would love some help. There are, are lots of ways in which you can serve. We, our children's ministry, uh, there's certainly, there are all kinds of ways in which you could serve, and that's an important way of surrendering um, our lives to God. Uh, obviously, another one, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is this idea of surrendering our lives for the sake of mission, right? Surrendering our time, seeking to spend time with people outside, outside of the church, seeking to spend time with them for the purposes of building a relationship with them and helping to show them the grace of God. That certainly from this passage, one of the ways you could do this is by inviting them over to your house. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He says, when you have people over to your house, he's sort of assuming that you're going to have people over to your house. He's saying, when you do this, and then he says, you know, and when you do it, just don't, don't just invite the people that you can receive from. Right? Everybody loves to have their wealthy neighbors over, right? Because then they're going to invite you over, right? Well, if they come over, then maybe they'll invite us to go out on their boat, right? And Jesus is saying, no, listen, you, you, you invite those people who maybe there's nothing that they can give back to you. You're just surrendering that time for the sake of mission, and we've, we've looked at that. These, these are all ways in which you can surrender your time, but, but I, I want to get, you know, because I want to be careful here anytime. This is what's so, I think, important for pastors to realize is anytime you start doing application, it can start sounding very legalistic. This is what you need to do. And so certainly I'm giving these as suggestions to you, but I want to get at a more fundamental principle. I think it's really this, that what it means to surrender our time to God is to realize that every moment is an opportunity to serve. Every moment is an opportunity to serve to serve. Every moment at work is an opportunity to serve. In fact, would, would love for, for us to begin to be thinking more and more about our work as a vocation. And I think this is incredibly important, especially for those of you who are younger, who are at that point where you're trying to determine which path you're going to go down. But it also applies to those of us who are older. My mom changed careers at 60. She was a computer scientist until 60, and then she went to nursing school. So it's never too late to change your vocation. I think it's important for us to understand what a vocation is. It comes from the Latin word vocare, which means calling. It's a calling. This idea of seeing your job as not just a job, not just an occupation that occupies your time, but as a vocation, as a calling. We're really seeking what is God calling me to and seeing your job itself as an act of service. I think that's an important part of what it means to surrender our time to God. I think it means that no matter what your job is, whether you're excited about your job or not, that you see it as an opportunity to serve within your job, to work hard, to do the best that you can in that job, to serve your coworkers, especially the ones that that maybe you don't get along with very well. I mean, these are ways in which you can surrender your time to God is, is just in, in every moment at work. You know, I, I think, and this gets to this, this whole, back to the question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon, and that is, that do you live to work or do you work to live? Do you live to work or do you work to live? And I'd like to suggest that there's a third option. And that is that we live and work 
to serve. That our goal in life is not ultimately our career success. Our goal in life is not ultimately to sit on the beach in Hawaii. I'm really ripping on my brother right now. I don't mean to. That's not the goal, right? I mean, people who work to live, it's all about I'm going to work as hard as I can so that I can retire as early as I can and then I can just go sit on the beach. It's understanding that both working and resting can be used to serve God. That, that rest, you know, part of what I, want, I do want to say here is we need to rest. I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't rest. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to the beach. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, sit down and veg from time to time. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take the weekend off, right? These things are all important. The question is, do you live for that or do you see that as an important way of recharging your soul so that you can serve? It's a totally different perspective. Do you live for vacation or do you see vacation as a necessary part of being human that allows you to rest and recharge so that you can go and serve? You see, it's, it's realizing that we, we don't live to work or work to live, but that we live to serve. And I think this is really important. What we need to understand is that if we begin to get this perspective that every moment is an opportunity to serve, that surrendering our time is seeing every moment as an opportunity to serve, we'll begin to understand why surrendering to God leads to life. And here's why. Here's one of the reasons why. You see, if you live to work, if it's all about your job, that can be taken from you. You can get fired. A competitor can come in and steal all of your business. You can get too, too old, and so now they're trying to bring in the new, the new young bucks, and so you kind of get pushed out, right? If, if work is what you're all about, that can be taken from you. And if rest is what you're all about, if working to live, it's all about vacation, it's all about, that can be taken from you as well, right? Because you don't get that promotion you wanted, the goals that you have for where you're going to retire and all this don't line up the way that you want them to line up. Your boss forces you to work extra hours so that you, you, you don't have as much time on the weekend. I mean, all of these things are not ultimately in your control. You can get a new boss. Maybe you love your old boss, but you know you got a new boss, and the, the job that you loved is now absolutely miserable. All of these things are out of your control. You see, if you, if you live to work or you live to rest... There's a lot that's not in your control, but listen to this. If you live to serve, nobody can ever take that from you. You can begin to experience a freedom that can't be taken from you. Because no matter where you are, you can always serve. No matter whether you like your boss, no matter you like your coworkers or not, you can always serve. You see, this is, this is why you find the early church, they don't even mind, they don't mind getting beaten, they don't mind getting thrown in prison, because it's not going to stop them from serving God. They have found the ultimate source of freedom. They can't stop you, even if they take your life. The heart of the Christian faith is that Jesus gave his life for us. He showed the ultimate act of surrender. 
Think about what was going on. The Roman authorities were trying to stop Jesus from accomplishing his goal. What they didn't realize is that his goal was to serve. And if your goal is to serve, it doesn't matter how much power anybody has. They can never stop you from doing that. In fact, when the Romans tried to stop Jesus, they actually just helped him do it. The heart of the Christian faith is that God is calling us to surrender our time to him because this is what he has done for us. If you are here today, what I hope that you would take away from this message above anything else is that you have a God who has surrendered everything for you. That's what's so unique about the Christian faith. You won't find this in any other religion. At the heart of the Christian faith is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself came and he surrendered his life for you that you might find life. And he's inviting us to step behind him, to follow him on the path that leads to life. We now come to our time of communion. Ushers, if you would get ready to come forward. Communion is a time when we are invited to surrender our lives to God. It's a symbolic way of saying, God, I surrender to you. Uh, if you are here today and you have yet to profess faith in Christ, then certainly I would encourage you just to, just to remain seated. The communion is, a, is really an act of us saying, I surrender to you, God, because you have surrendered to me. That we take these elements, the, the cup and the bread, they represent the body and the blood of Christ. A reminder that God himself gave his life for us. And so that's what communion is all about. And so what we're going to do as we've done in the last couple of weeks is after I pray and, and say a couple of things after I pray, then the ushers are going to go to opposite corners here. And then we invite you to come. We invite you to come up the side aisles. You'll come up. You'll take the bread. You'll take the cup. You'll consume them right where you take them. Uh, you can also come forward. We invite you to come if you so wish and kneel here on the steps. Maybe take a moment. Uh, in prayer uh, before the cross, and then as you leave, uh, as you're finished, uh, please just go down the center aisles, take your cups with them, uh, and put them uh, back when you return to your seat. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning, and we praise you for your abundant grace. We praise you that you are a God who does not look upon our situation with disinterest. You are not a God who looks upon our problems, the challenges that we're facing in life. You don't look upon us with a spirit of judgment. You look upon us with a spirit of compassion and grace and a desire to lead us away from those things in life that are taking life from us, that you long for us to come to you and to find life. God, I pray that for those who have been following Jesus or seeking to follow him for many years now, that communion would be a reminder once again, a recommitment of our surrendering to you. Maybe for some today, for the first time in their life, they've come to see their need to surrender to you. They've come to see their need to put behind uh, ways of the past and to walk with you as their only source of life. 
God, we pray that you would meet us as we take these elements. We pray this in Jesus' name.